It was the top of the fifth inning of Game 3 of the 1932 World Series when the legendary Babe Ruth stepped into the batter's box for the visiting New York Yankees. The hometown Chicago Cubs players and fans had mercilessly trash-talked the Babe all day. And rather than ignoring them, Ruth egged them on with words and not-so-polite gestures of his own. But with the score tied 4-4, to Ruth stepped to the plate as the fans jeered and the opposing bench players continued to hurl insults. Ruth watched the first pitch go by, held up his hand, stuck out one finger as the umpire yelled, strike one. He then pointed to the center field stands. Moments later, he watched the second pitch sail by. Strike two, the umpire yelled as the raucous crowd amped up their taunts. Ruth pointed a second time towards the center field flagpole and shouted, I'm going to sock it right there. On the very next pitch, the babe swung hard, made solid contact, and deposited the ball high into those center field stands 490 feet away. It was arguably the longest home run of his storied career. It not only put his team up by a run, but they went on to win that game, and a couple days later, the New York Yankees were World Series champions yet again. The storied Babe Ruth had called his shot and delivered one of history's most famous home runs. One of history's most... But the Bambino was not the first to call his own shot, nor was he the most famous to do so. Calling shots at sporting events are trivial things at best. They mean nothing when all is said and done. But what if someone called a shot that did have extraordinary importance. A shot that was a matter of life and death. Not just his life and death, mind you, but everyone's. Everyone who ever walked the earth. Such a shot was called and delivered one Friday long ago by Christ Jesus in what turned out to be the most important Friday in history, the Friday that changed the world. So let's look at Luke chapter 22 and pick up where we left off. But before we start reading, remember how Thursday ended? Jesus had just been betrayed by one of his own disciples after agonizing in prayer on the Mount of Olives as he was seized by temple officers, the disciples with whom he had just celebrated a Passover meal all scattered and in one famous case, even denied knowledge of him three times. Jesus was now alone in the custody of temple guards who blindfolded him and mercilessly mocked him while chief priests and elders conjured up false charges under cover of darkness in an outlandishly illegal trial. This trial had one goal, 
to authorize his execution under any pretense possible. And as Matthew's account of these affairs states succinctly, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. It's kind of hard to convict an innocent man of anything, let alone a crime demanding the death penalty. So with that in mind, let's pick up in Luke 22, verse 66, and start reading our text. When day came that Friday, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. For Jesus' prosecutors, the night had been long and unproductive. They had come up with nothing to hang on him. They needed a breakthrough if they were to convict Jesus. But no charge stuck. Witness after witness told conflicting stories. They couldn't even get false witnesses to agree on their testimony. The prosecution was spinning its wheels. But when day came, they hatched a new strategy. Why not just ask them straight up? If you're the Christ, tell us. Admittedly, this was a risky maneuver. Up to this point, Jesus had remained silent before his accusers. He had, as we would say today, pled the fifth, thus avoiding any opportunity to incriminate himself. But to everyone's surprise, Jesus broke his silence and answered their question. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What did he just say? The council was stunned. Did he just say he would be seated at the right hand of God? Isn't 10? These council members knew their Bible. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. That's a psalm where David pays homage to a messianic Christ figure who is equal to God at God's right hand. And then what, what did he call himself while seated there? He called himself the Son of Man? That's a, that's a reference to another, another prophetic scripture in Daniel chapter 7, which reads this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed, 
That's a messianic text about a human to whom God gives a glorious eternal kingdom. Did he just say what we think he said? Let's ask him once more to make sure. Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Now that's a very little literal translation. You say that I am. It sounds a bit cryptic to our ears. But it essentially means something like this. I wouldn't put it that way, but I won't deny its truthfulness either. So essentially, Jesus just gave his accusers the answer they were looking for. He unequivocally admitted to being the Christ of Psalm 110, the Son of Man of Daniel 7, and yes, he admitted that he was the Son of God. And to the council, this was blasphemy. Jesus, a man, had claimed to be equal to God. What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This confession from Jesus' own lips sealed his conviction and assured his own death sentence. He had given his accusers all that they needed to get the ball rolling and land him on the cross. But it was Jesus who initiated it. In effect, Jesus had called his own shot. Now let's see where it landed him. Follow along as we pick it up in chapter 23, in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. To get Jesus killed, the chief priests needed authorization from their Roman overlords. But they also knew that Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was not considered a crime in Roman jurisprudence. Rome ruled over lots of people who claim relationships with gods. Such folks were not considered a threat to Roman power. So Jesus' accusers had to approach Pilate, their local governor, from a different angle. They had to present Jesus as a menace to Roman military might. So, ironically, they declared him to be the anointed one, the Christ, or in Roman terms, a king. This king language was sure to gain Pilate's curiosity, but it wasn't very convincing. Clearly puzzled, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? A cryptic, you have said so, was the response. I wouldn't put it that way, but I won't deny its truthfulness. From this, Pilate quickly discerned that Jesus was not a threat to Rome. Where were his fighting soldiers? How could this man possibly be leading an insurrection? So he quickly dismissed the charge and declared, I find no guilt in this man. And that should have ended it. 
Caesar's tribunal had just declared Jesus not guilty. But justice and the rule of law were nowhere to be found this particular Friday. For as Jesus had declared the night before, this was the hour when the power of darkness held sway. And as the drama unfolded, Pilate would have gradually give way to the demands of a growing crowd of accusers. Let's pick it up again in verse 18. But they all cried together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus over to their will. Did you catch that little twist there? Jesus literally took the place of a man found guilty of insurrection and murder The guilty Barabbas had probably woken up that morning thinking it would be his last day on earth. He was probably scheduled to be crucified on the very cross to which Jesus was sent. But by an unexpected twist of events, his life was spared that day. An innocent man would die in his place. It's important to note that Luke establishes the certainty of Jesus' innocence. Throughout his narrative, Pilate actually declares Jesus not guilty on three separate occasions. And then to back it up, three other people give similar declarations. Let's look for these declarations in the text. List them one by one. We've already read a couple of them. In verse 4, Pilate first says, I find no guilt in this man. Then a few verses later, he says it again in verse 14. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And Herod, another ruling tetrarch who had also seen Jesus, confirmed Pilate's not guilty plea by saying nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And then Pilate, for the third time that we just read in verse 22, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. And that's not all. The narrative goes on. Verse 41, there's going to be a criminal hanging on the cross who's going to say, this man has done nothing wrong. And at the very end of the narrative, in verse 47, A centurion of all people shouts out, 
Certainly this man was innocent. So on the authority of at least four witnesses in the span of 43 verses, it is attested that Jesus suffered and died like a spotless, innocent lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep silent before his shears. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 7. But it's also important to note that this spotless lamb of God would die a substitutionary death. He would literally take the place of the guilty Barabbas and many, many others as well. But who orchestrated this exchange? From the text, it would seem a conglomeration of evil people did. False accusers riled up an angry mob to demand that Jesus be crucified, and the fervorous pitch of their bloodthirsty cry pushed a morally compromised magistrate to acquiesce and eventually capitulate to their unjust demand. The whole scene had a stench of horrendous evil. But surprisingly, what they meant for evil God meant for good. It just so happened that their plan of destruction was perfectly in line with God's plan of salvation. You see, Jesus had not only called the shot that got this travesty rolling, he was still calling the shots. All of them. All the way to the cross and beyond. Let me explain. Everything about this Friday was written centuries in advance. The details of every event had been foreshadowed in Holy Scripture. And who was the one speaking through Old Testament Scripture? Who's the one who inspired those writers to pen every word? None other in the very word of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the one who became man, lived an innocent life on earth, and was now suffering on behalf of its sinful inhabitants. Let's look at a few of these Old Testament scriptures and compare them to our text here in Luke. We'll start with Isaiah 53, 12, where it says, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And then compare that to verses 32 and 33 in our text. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now let's look at Psalm 22, 18, where it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that shows up in verse 34 of our text. And they cast lots to divide his garments, the soldiers who had crucified him. 
Okay, now let's look at Psalm 22 again, another part of the same psalm, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 35 of our text sounds very similar. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. Let's do one more. Psalm 69 this time. Psalm 69, 21, where it says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 36 of our text. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And I could go on, but you get the point. Nothing happened that day by accident. Everything was pre-planned by the one at the center of it. It's as if that inscription that Pilate had nailed above him on the cross, this is the king of the Jews, had a double meaning. What Pilate meant to be a sign of mockery was truer than he knew. Hanging there on the tree for all to see was the actual king of the Jews. More precisely, the sovereign king of everything. The one calling the shots. Now with this in view, it would be, it would be Hoove us to take a look at how various people are responding to this scene and learn from them. What can we make of this spectacle? How shall we respond? Luke pictures several different responses from several different, different people that day. Some good, some bad. Let's learn from them. Let's start with some of the not so good ones. Here's one, verse 8. Herod. Herod had a response to Jesus, an enthusiastic response. Let's, I'll read it to you. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was looking for signs, looking for a little show. He was eager to see Jesus, but not for the right reasons. He wanted for the right reasons. Jesus to prove himself by doing something amazing. And when he didn't see Jesus perform on demand, he dismissed him and joined the mockers. I'd never demand a sign from Jesus, you might say. And not so fast, let's think about it. Have you ever asked God to act on your behalf only to get frustrated when he doesn't respond as expected? Think about the many prayer requests that seem to go unanswered for long periods of time. For healing of long-term illnesses, for better jobs, promotions, even for salvation of unloved, uh, salvation of loved ones and unloved ones. When God doesn't give us the miracle 
for which we have persistently prayed. Do we give up? Do we grow hard-hearted towards the Savior and become dismissive of him like Herod did? We need to watch our hearts. Here's another response. In verse 27 of our text, there's an interesting little interlude as Jesus is on his way to the cross. It reads like this. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. At first glance, this looks like a noble response. Feel sorry for poor Jesus. Identify with his suffering. Feel his pain. Weep and howl for him. But this is a misguided response that Jesus rebukes in rather stark terms. Notice what he tells these well-meaning ladies in the very next verse. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In effect, he's telling them, I'm not the victim here. Look at yourselves. You're the victims. You're the sinners, bent on your own destruction. Weep for yourselves. Now when do we fall for this kind of response? Whenever we imagine our sufferings for Jesus to earn his favor. The more I suffer, the more he gives. Whenever we expect our hard work for God to pay big dividends because God owes it to us. Whenever we expect our religious devotion to rain down blessings from heaven because we're so good. We're suffering for Jesus. The truth is, God doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't rely on our words or deeds to accomplish his purposes. Rather, we need him to die in our stead. So weep for yourselves. Now here's a third response I'd like us to look at. This is at the end of the narrative. In verse 47, this is actually after Jesus has died and the spectacle of the cross is concluded. One man who had a front row seat and observed everything made a stunning proclamation in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was one of those who likely nailed Jesus to the cross. He may have won possession of some of Jesus' garments when they cast lots for them. He was probably among the mockers hurling abuse at him throughout the six-hour ordeal. But after observing everything that transpired, how Jesus conducted himself through the abuse, through three hours of darkness, and the way in which he died, the centurion came to a startling realization. 
This Jesus who had, had conducted himself with such grace towards his accusers, his mockers, and even his God, had to be innocent of all the charges. In fact, Jesus was downright praiseworthy for what he had done. Other gospel accounts go far as to say that the centurion even acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God. Now that's an excellent response. Anyone who comes to realize who Jesus really is is close to the kingdom of God. But it's not a sufficient response. Knowing all the facts about Jesus is delightful. Knowing Jesus is a sinless Savior is wonderful. And knowing that Jesus is the Son of God is a good first step. But there is one key element missing from this response. Knowing all the facts. You don't just need to know all the facts about Jesus, what he said, what he did, who he is. You need to confess your need for him. Of all the people at and around the cross that Friday, only one demonstrated a sufficient response to Jesus, as stated here in the text. He was perhaps the least likely candidate of all the bunch to respond the way he did. After all, he was a dead man hanging with no opportunity to rescue himself, help himself, improve himself. He only had a few more hours to live. In fact, earlier in the day, other gospel accounts record that he was among the mockers of Jesus. He had mocked Jesus when he first went to the cross. But something changed in his heart as he hung there watching the man on the middle cross graciously despise all the shame. Here's how Luke records his story in verse 40. Remember, there were two criminals hanging with Jesus. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What was special about the second criminal's response? Let's take a look. First, he feared God. 
says that in verse 40. Do you not fear God? He wasn't, he was afraid to rail against Christ like his partner in crime on the other side. Second, he recognized he was a condemned sinner and was dying a death that he actually deserved. Third, he noted that Jesus was dying a death that Jesus didn't deserve. And instead of demanding that Jesus save yourself and us, like his partner, he humbly confessed his need for Jesus by saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, not knowing how Jesus would respond. The criminal made no demands of Jesus, like his partner in crime on the opposite cross. He had no time to clean up his life and change his ways. He probably knew nothing of Jesus other than what he had just observed on the cross that day. But what he did know is that Jesus was someone he needed. Someone who could rescue him from his own sentence of condemnation. And he was willing to confess that need and just ask for help. And what was Jesus' response to his humble request? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. May we emulate his response. May we see ourselves as the guilty one who deserves to die, and the one on that cross dying in our stead. But to make good on his promise to the criminal and to all those for whom he was dying, Jesus had one more shot to call. As Luke records it in verse 44 through 46. It was now about the sixth hour. He'd already been hanging for three hours. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So he hung on the cross for six. While the sun's light failed, the sun itself failing. This is a thick darkness. Very midday, the sun is failing. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These final hours on the cross were scary for everyone watching. Sun's light failed and darkness descended for three solid hours. The temple curtain isolating the Holy of Holies tore in two as the earth shook and the rocks split, as recorded in Matthew's account. During this time, if you notice, 
all that mocking ceased. No further insults were hurled towards the king on the cross. No one said anything. As verse 48 says, everyone returned home beating their breasts in terror. They're scared. Yet, there he hung. The resolute Son of God, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Every enemy face thus far had been silenced. The cup of God's wrath had been fully drained. Every enemy defeated, except for one. Only one enemy remained. Death. Jesus, the God-man, still had to die. But only he could make that call. No one else could kill him. And he even said so to his disciples before. In John 10, 18, it's recorded, he said this, speaking of his death. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And so he did. He called his shot one final time that Good Friday. Into the Father's hands he committed his spirit and breathed his last. And death would never be the same. Let's pray. Father God, we stand amazed when we see the spectacle of the cross that proved to be your plan of salvation for all those who would just ask for help, who would just recognize their need to be saved like that thief on the cross. Lord God, we're so grateful that this story in Luke 23 doesn't end here. He's got business to do with death. But he's about to deliver a knockout punch. And we're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for what transpired there and in the next couple of days. We ask that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith as we walk daily with you. In your son's name, amen.